Hey y'all, welcome back to The Lab. It's Ryan Williams here. Stories from the Influencer Economy is the podcast in the Rhino Lab, which is my garage. It's all about reaching your next opportunity. This episode is number 108 with Brad Feld. This is a deep episode with Brad. We talk about his dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and we share stories about how we've overcome depression. I held on to this episode for about nine months. It was really hard for me to contextualize this and post it because I shared my own personal stories about depression and Brad and I talk about what to do if you're not feeling well. It's a really personal episode. We share a lot of anecdotes about dealing with our own depression, our own demons. These episodes really, I think, showcase what makes this podcast special. So kick it off to Brad. Hey, y'all, welcome back to the podcast. This is Ryan Williams, host of Stories from the Influencer Economy. Each episode, we talk about the Rhino Lab, which is all about reaching your next opportunity. Brad Feld, how are you doing? I'm good. Brad's a former guest of the podcast. Happy to have him back. He was on episode number 71. He's a two-time guest, which I'm proud to say. Brad's an investor, an entrepreneur, and he started Techstars and Foundry Group. He himself has invested in hundreds and hundreds of startups Many have gone public on the New York Stock Exchange. Others uh, know Brad as a great mentor and leader in building startup communities. Brad, thanks again for coming on. Let's start by talking about your blog post about coming out of the shadows with your depression while you're at CES, the consumer trade show in Vegas. Sure. So that specific event was CES in 2013. And uh, it was essentially the point at which I acknowledged uh, that I was having a serious clinical depression. Um, it was the third uh, that I've had as an adult. I had one in my mid-20s for that lasted for two years. Um, I had one in my mid-30s that lasted for about three months. And then I had one in my late 40s, which probably started a little bit before January, so probably in December somewhere, maybe even November. But I didn't really acknowledge it until I was uh, at CES and anybody's ever gone to CES, it's a madness of people. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got off the plane and I went to my hotel and I checked in and I started to go do something. And like within a couple of hours, I was in my hotel room uh, with the pillow over my head, with the lights out, just not being able to deal with anything. And it wasn't that CES triggered the depression. Like I was already in that state. Uh, and the, the arc to it was significant. I, uh, you know, I've had plenty of time. It's 2000, 2013, so I've had plenty of time to process it at this point. And really, the from my frame of reference, the source starting point of it was I ran a 50-mile race in April 2012, uh, and I never physiologically recovered from it. So I, I ran this race, and, you know, work world was going very well. My personal life was great. You know, things at Foundry Group were very successful. You know, plenty of ups and downs as, you know, venture capital works, but uh, holistically feeling very, very good in, in lots of different dimensions. And so I ran this race. It was a huge amount of training and uh, I'm a marathon runner, but it was the first ultra. And uh, what's the ultra marathon? 50 miles instead okay. of uh, 26 miles. So instead of, you know, taking a month off and coming home and, you know, relaxing and recovering physically and eating the right stuff and you know working but not you know crazy working 
uh, the day after or two days after I was, uh, I stayed in the Bay area. I ran it in Sacramento. I stayed in the Bay area. I spent a week on the West coast. I spent the next week on the East coast. Um, you know, I traveled like crazy, uh, over the course of the summer, uh, I, uh, Amy and I wrote our book, startup life. Right. And this is your, your wife, my wife, Amy finished my book startup community. So I worked very intensely over the summer on that. In addition to all my normal work, um, in September, uh, we took, I went with my partner, Seth and some friends on a bike trip for his 40th birthday. And on the second to last day, I had a pretty serious bike accident, which, um, you know, if I had not smashed into my partner, Ryan, I probably would have gone over a bridge and died. Um, was that, so, you know, where, where was that? Slovenia. Oh, wow. So, so you're traveling like side, crazy. Other side of the world. I came back. Instead of coming home, I went to New York. My wife, Amy's birthdays uh, in September. I like to say it now takes a whole month instead of being a day. So My wife's you know, the we, same way. She's a birthday month. It, it's, it's the way it should be. <laughs> and uh, instead of, you know, instead of... Uh, uh, recovering from this bike accident in a rational way. You know, I got up every morning at five and I did my work and I had full days and then we went out every night and I wasn't sleeping very well and I was self-medicating with Advil PM and, um, were you drinking alcohol? Lots of alcohol, you know, because, you know, just trying to like, you know, get through it. And then I ran a, I wasn't running. I went and ran a marathon in October that I just gutted out because my partner Jason's first time running a marathon. When was the original ultra marathon? Uh, uh, April. And so there's just five months later you ran a, a full marathon. Yeah, but five months wouldn't have been a problem. But I hadn't because I had this bike accident for six weeks. I didn't run at all, and I was in very very good shape. But I, you know, just all of these things were my. I just didn't let my body recover physiologically, which started to impact you know, me as a whole system. Um, uh, and then I had one more health issue by the end of the year, which I think was linked to all of this is I ended up with a kidney stone that required surgery. Um, so I had surgery and then the recovery from surgery. So I had all of this sort of physiological stuff. And then the layer on top of it was, um, a glitch that I had in my thinking about what was important to me. So for, you know, the first 47 years of my life or whatever, I would describe myself very, very intrinsically motivated by learning. I'm not extrinsically motivated. You the, know, fir- the first how many years of your life? My, my, up to the point I was 47. Like I would describe myself, you know, when you talk about how, what motivates you right. and what, for me, it, it's this intense in, intrinsic internal motivation uh, around learning. And the extrinsic uh, external rewards, accolades, you know, success – wealth, accomplishment, uh, you know, all of those things are fine. And I'm not a savant where I don't care about any of that stuff, but it's not very important to me. What's really important to me, what really motivates me is learning and like a commonality. Being, being curious about. Well, curious or being in a situation where I feel like the things I'm doing every day are causing me to learn more, explore new things, understand new things, work on new problems, get exposure to new stuff. And um, when I reflected on this particular depression, um, uh, I was what I would categorize as bored. And I describe it that way because, um, you know, part of the work that I did post this depression was I had the same feeling of boredom in my 20s and again in my 30s 
And it wasn't boredom where I had nothing to do. I was incredibly busy, but I wasn't learning that much. And the glitch, which, you know, I, I was able to work out with therapy and, and with my wife and with talking to some friends and reflecting was at 47, 48, I'm spending a lot of my time teaching as well as learning. And my glitch was that I didn't associate teaching and learning as, as the same thing in the context of my intrinsic motivation. I actually really love teaching and I learn a lot from the process of teaching because so much of teaching is pure mentorship and interactive and it forces you to say things in a different way or think about things in a different way. And, you know, amongst a bunch of behavioral things that I changed, I reconnected those two things in my mind. And so if you said to me, what motivates me today, I would say I'm intrinsically motivated by learning and teaching. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that causes me to never have a situation where I'll ever be depressed again, but certainly in the context of now being a 50 year old and having a different role in life than when I was a 25 year old and the interaction dynamics between spending my time learning, spending my time teaching and the interplay between those are different. I think that is a fundamentally uh, changed part of my, my psychology. So do you think it was an, you mentioned the surgery, the ultra marathon, the marathon, you're traveling like crazy. You have a month long birthday celebration for your wife, Amy, and that you're in some ways predisposed, you think, based on your past behaviors, that it was a perfect storm also of external yeah. activities. There's some elements of that. I mean, I, I have always lived uh, in, in what I would call a boom bust uh, energy cycle um, that usually has sort of a periodicity of a year. So every year I would get, you know, somewhere in the course of the year, I get burnt out and need a break. By the end of the year, as December came around, I was usually very, very tired. Um, you know, Amy and I have a week uh, quarter that we go off the grid. Um, and so that was incorporated to my life. So I had sort of these 11 weeks of really intense whatever, and then I'd have a week off. And then 11 weeks, and then a week off. And that was very, you know, over a long period of time, that was the rhythm so you, um, you learned that about yourself, that you needed that? Well, I needed that time off very badly, but it was also cumulative. Like, yeah, okay, I had a week off, but didn't really solve the problem because the amount of ramp up was so steep that even with the week off, I kind of, that was able, I was able to, you know, hang on by my fingernails over a long period of time. So that was one of it. Another was I had, for example, there's a long list of these things, but I, I self-identified with the idea of waking up every morning at 5 a.m., so I was that guy who no matter what time zone I was in, I woke up at 5 a.m. every day. And I, I rationalized that I traveled 75% of the time and I, I, I can fall asleep like that on an airplane, wheels up to wheels down. And so I'd rationalize that I was getting plenty of sleep because, you know, I was sleeping on planes, I was sleeping in between things, that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily quality sleep. Shitty sleep. It's, yeah. you know, sleep. Sleep on an airplane. Turns out you're not really getting much sleep, and which I've subsequently learned. And uh, so I, when I came, went into this depressive cycle, I stopped waking up at five. And I actually stopped waking up with an alarm clock. And for six months, uh, I slept more than 12 hours a night, which just tells you how physiologically exhausted I was yeah. at that point. Right, which again feeds into all of the pieces around depression and and your body and and not just how you're relating to the moment in time, but how you're able to cope with whatever new things come at you. 
So those were all, you know, I could give you another. No, I'm curious, actually, things, but they're foundational. I'm curious about your talk about foundational. So I was first depressed in my early 20s and I had graduated college and I had bouts of depression when I was in school, but I didn't really know what it was because in the early 2000s, there was much more of a stigma. Like you weren't having conversations like these. And yep. my friends from college who actually weren't really my good friends ultimately in life were like, deal with it. You, you know, you're being a pussy. Like, cause I was, I was reclusive and I would go and sleep and that's how I would, would cope and like take, take stock of what I was doing. And I ended up turning to stand up comedy as a creative outlet. Cause I felt like I needed mm. to, to get myself like putting myself out there and taking more chances helped me because I would sleep. I'd go to work. I worked at a nonprofit in Washington DC. This is many careers ago. And I ended up going to my job. I would sleep on the weekends and I had all this medicine that the doctors were giving me. Like I had Lexapro, which then hurt. I had no sexual desires because of that. They thought I had a personality disorder. I mean, it was like literally like throwing darts against the wall to help me cope. And I just found like it was such a closed network that I couldn't tell anyone about it because no one understood it. So could you talk about your first bout of depression when it was not like we are now where we have all these people at our disposal? Yeah, so my first my first bout of depression was in the uh, early to mid '90s. I was running my first company. It's in Boston. Uh, in Boston, my first company was successful, um, uh, and so there were a, a, a confluence of factors. Uh, one was uh, I ended up getting divorced. My my first wife uh, had an affair that lasted for about a year. Um, and you know, she was clearly acting out in the context of our relationship, not being effective. Um, I also dropped out of a PhD program. I like to say I got kicked out mostly just cause it's annoying to the people at MIT that I, I was part of, but I, 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 I was not being effective as a PhD student cause I was running my company full time and I was working hundred hours a week. And again, this notion of boredom plays into it, which is I was kind of doing the same thing. I mean, my business was working, but I wasn't really feeling like I was learning that much. And I had this long depression, two years. Um, I had uh, a great uh, psychiatrist relationship that I started, um, which was very impactful. Um, at that time, though, there was this unbelievable, and, and, there, and there still is a very significant stigma around depression, but at that time especially, I was incredibly ashamed of how I was feeling. So I'm CEO and the messaging I'm getting is, you know, 24, 25 year old or whatever I was CEO was, you know, you have to be strong. You have to never show any weakness. You have to, you're leading, you know, I'm in Boston. That just reinforces that. Suck it up, be tough, deal with it. And, you know, you're doing a bunch of Red Sox fans who suffered their whole life. So there's no sympathy. You know, I'd I'd get up in the morning, I literally, you know, my my sort of mental model was I'm putting my armor on, and I go to battle for the day, and I work, you know, normally I'm, you know, 15-hour day, I can kind of get through a 10 or 11-hour day, I come home, and and I have no energy to do anything other than sit in the bathtub for three hours, I can't even read a book. Yeah. You know, and I sleep, and I get up the next day. So you're going to to work doing the work, and then you go home and check out. Yeah, uh, you know, effective at doing the work, but and very functional, but zero joy, no satisfaction, anything, and this in- intense sense of shame around being depressed, around having a, a therapist, around ta- you know taking medication to try to deal with it. Turns out, 
Um, the clinical disorder I have is obsessive compulsive disorder, which is an anxiety disorder. A lot of people talk about having OCD, but it's it's more cliche-ish than having clinical OCD. And it, it's a very debilitating anxiety disorder because it really Im- impacts how much energy you spend just trying to get through normal things while linking together irrational thoughts uh, around outcomes that have nothing to do with the things you're doing. Right. Uh, my, one of my favorite examples is I went through a phase where living in Boston, I, I, I believed that every cigarette that I encountered as I was walking down the street had to be parallel to the street or else my mother would die. You know, and that's the fu- that's the narrative yeah. going on no, between it's the, ex- the extremes that you you verbalize them and they sound so ridiculous, but when you're experiencing, it's real. You're living in it, and it's debilitating. So, you know, for for me, there was an a, you know huge stigma. Fortunately, my my now wife Amy and I got into a relationship, and she was unbelievable. My now helpful. wife Catherine and I met during that period. She was right? a catalyst to to help get get out of it. Incredible! I can't and, believe and, she know, stuck with me. I'm I just, have I have the same feeling. I once like, took a nap. Know. I was on this medication called Geodone because they thought I had some personality disorder. And I took a nap in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. And during our lunch breaks, we would get lunch. And Catherine said, what did you do for lunch yesterday? And I didn't tell her. But then the next day, I, I'd taken a nap the day before. I took a nap the next day. And I took, she caught me on a park bench sleeping. And she's like, get it together. But I was on this horrible medicine that yeah, made me so drowsy. Thing. And she's like, this isn't you. Let's fix it. And to this day, like I'm shocked that we have two kids. I mean, it's congratulations. But that's, that's really awesome. like you need a catalyst like that to help you get out of the buriedness. Very much, very much. So, so that was in my 20s, and I really had very few people to talk to. I had Amy, uh, my business partner Dave um, uh, was, and who's still one of my best friends and knows me as well as anybody on this planet. Uh, was was incredibly supportive, even though it wasn't at all clear what to do, and and then I had uh, effectively my my therapist and my PhD advisor, a guy named Eric, who had had his own struggles. So he was very paternalistic in his role, but was able to be very significant in terms of just me having someone to be able to talk to, right. and then. Sort of next from that was in my 30s. It was in 2001 when the internet bubble was collapsing. I was exhausted from dealing with just the shit show that was, you know, my world and all the world around me. And uh, the trigger for me then was 9/11. I was in New York on 9/11. I'd taken a red eye the night before. I was never in harm's way. Uh, I was in a hotel in Midtown, asleep when the ho- when the when the buildings fell. But it, you know, I think many people in the United States went through an existential crisis or right. a depressive period. We still are that. as a country. Look at our election. That's right, and 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 that really flipped me into a mode. And that time, I was still, I would say, uh, I was not as ashamed, but I was still quiet and and not really sure how to process it. Um, uh, but I did know a lot of things better tactically. I came home and I canceled all my travel through the end of the year. I gave, I rested a lot. I shut it down. I sort of let it pass. And I wasn't as afraid because the first time I had this two year segment and I was afraid I would never feel better or never feel not depressed. Yeah, yeah. When I, when I had this depression in 2001, I was, I was comfortable that at some point I wasn't afraid. I wouldn't say I was comfortable. I, was, I wasn't afraid. I, I, I speculated that it would pass. And then when I got depressed again, this most recent time, 
uh, a bunch of things played together. I wasn't worried about it fundamentally. I knew it would pass. I didn't like it. I didn't embrace it, right? It wasn't what I wanted, but yeah. I, I was comfortable with the idea that I would eventually pass, and I couldn't make it pass. It would just pass. Second, you know, I've been so public and so open about my life over the previous 10 years, blogging and talking and, you know, just sort of the, 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 the way I participated in the startup uh, community broadly is that I realized that if I wasn't open about this uh, and how I was feeling, I, was, I would be totally bullshitting myself. Yeah. Forget about everybody else, just I myself. And, and that, wasn't, that didn't feel good to me. And I, didn't, I wasn't open about it because of some specific reason other than the authenticity of how I felt and wanting some internal consistency. Um, and I don't think I actually got very much, if any, relief from being open about it other than the fact that I transcended being ashamed this time. This time I wasn't ashamed. Um, and I had a lot of interactions with many, many more people including a lot of entrepreneurs who struggled with their own depression, which caused me to feel less alone in my own struggle. And I tried not to intellectualize what was happening while I was in it. Right. Because I knew the danger of that. But it gave me sort of the base to, you know, in the second half of 2013, after I was no longer depressed, when I reflected on it, I had a much broader base of people to talk to and ways to interact and think about it. And part of what came from that was this understanding of the incredible stigma, uh, especially in entrepreneurship around mental health. Several people had committed suicide sort of in this time frame. Um, Aaron Schwartz was one of the very right. visible ones, but there were a few others. And, you know, I, I personally came to the point where I thought that it was important to destigmatize, you know, depression specifically and the struggles with mental health in the context of leadership. And I've actually shifted to the notion of uh, a phrase I like to use, which is mental fitness. Right. Right. We talk about physical health, but we also talk about physical fitness. And I kind of like the idea as a founder of physical fitness. I mean, the uh, if you break your arm uh, or if you have diabetes, you're not unfit to be a CEO, but there are specific things you have to do to take care of your health. Right. You're in that context. Well, why not think about mental health or mental fitness in the same way? And and you know that's been part of the motivation for being continuing to be open and engage in the conversation. That's fantastic. Yeah, I had a conversation with Rand Fishkin, who you've talked about, his friend of mm -hmm. yours, about depression, and I published the podcast, and I was nervous about the reaction. Because I, I thought I'd be judged for whatever reason. It's in my head. I wasn't necessarily ashamed, but it was a variation of that feeling. And I have I still get mentions on Twitter randomly, people loving that episode and adding me on LinkedIn for whatever reason. They picked that venue. Um, and also I got like a, a consultant gig out of it because they liked the realness of it. But to your point, it doesn't necessarily make me feel better to talk about it, but it helps me to sort of process it. Because yeah. it's like you keep these demons in your head that only your inner circle knows and it's you know cathartic for yourself to actually, for me at least, to get something out there around it because you sort of like peel back the layer of who you are as a person. And in, like in my book, I ended up adding depression story into the preface. And then I talked about in the final chapter, Randomized Podcast. And I feel like once you have a platform, an opportunity where people do listen to you, you have to represent some sort of underserved community that's out there. It doesn't need to be your 100% focus. It could be 10 to 15%. But just putting yourself out there, it really, I find it 
that's like the most therapeutic thing out there for my podcast. So now I'm focusing probably 15% of episodes on this topic, which is uh, why you're that's here. That's great. Why I'm here. I think it's a super healthy, uh, super healthy frame of reference. Um, do, you, do you have to go in a minute? Yeah, I got a hangout that just came up. It's 2.30, so I probably have to go okay. do this. Well, so mental fitness, it's a good, good note to end on. And uh, yeah, if you are listening to this podcast and you are suffering with depression, like what was your, who should they talk to? You think friends or a peer well, group? I, I don't think there's any magic answers. I would say one thing, and, and you know, there, there is several good organizations around this now uh, that I've learned about. Um, one of the, I'm very fortunate, I've only had one suicidal ideation and all of these depressions, but um, you know, that's something to take very seriously. And, and, uh, the simple feedback for anybody, uh, you know, that, that gets theirs in the absence of having a therapist, you know, a psychiatrist or psychologist that you can immediately interact with, um, the national suicide prevention hotline is something that is at least a resource. If you have that moment of suicidal ideation, um, to, to take action with a professional on it, the second is, I'd say, you know, I, I believe there is immense value in, um, in therapy, both psychology and, and psychiatry. Uh, I like to tell people, I get, you know, I get to, to pay this guy uh, once a week. To, he has to listen to me for 50 minutes. Like, I get to go to Planet Brad, and the guy just, you know, he has to sit there and listen yeah. to me if I want him to do that, or we can interact or whatever. Like, that's powerful. Right. Because it, it gives you a chance to be on your own exploration, especially when you're in the midst of this. And then the last is, is uh, yeah, I mean, to, to, to the extent that the people that slap you on the back and say you'll get over it and, you know, just suck it up and get through it, like none of those people are going to help you. Find people who actually have been depressed, have friends that have been depressed or empathetic or are close to you that you can share some emotional intimacy around. But don't expect them to fix you. Don't expect them to solve the problem um, because that's not how it works. Um, but instead, you know, I, I, I'll end on the example of my friend Dave when I was depressed in, in, in my late 40s, you know, who, again, extremely close, knows me very well. You know, Dave, Dave would call me up randomly during this six-month period, maybe every other week. He'd send me, he wouldn't call me, send me an email and say, you want to go for a walk this afternoon at 3 o'clock? Uh, or, you, you know, you have time to, to, today to go for a walk. He wouldn't say tomorrow. He wouldn't create this burden of me scheduling it. He'd say, I'll be at your office. I checked with your assistant. You got 30 minutes free. Uh, and he knows I love to go for a walk. And he knows I feel safe and comfortable with him. You know, that sort of thing. And the end result of that is that those were the really powerful moments. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brad. Have a good one. All right. Talk to you soon. See you, man. All right, later. Hey, that was uh, Brad Feld, founder, entrepreneur, author, a truly personal conversation. I didn't realize how personal it was until I listened to it again. And I, as I mentioned at the top, I held off on that for like nine months. I interviewed him this summer. And as you could tell, like I just published my book in the context of the interview. Uh, but that was a special, unique one for me. So hopefully you got something out of it. If you did, hit me up. Hello at InfluencerEconomy.com. I always love hearing stories about people, how they've overcome their depression or obsessive compulsive disorders or anxiety. Um, yeah, so it's really hard to talk about this stuff and I have trouble doing it. So hopefully this helps at least one person out there. And I thought Brad had really good advice at the end. So I'm uncomfortable now talking about this. Um, anyway, let's uh, 
Go to InfluencerEconomy.com. I'll give you my free workbook for how to launch your idea, collaborate to build your product to reach influencers in the modern economy. Go to InfluencerEconomy.com and I'll give that to you for free if you sign up for my email list. And finally, if you are listening on iTunes, please leave a review and subscribe. And I'd love to help you. So let me know if I can do anything for you in return. I'm extremely grateful for all the community members, listeners, and people who have gravitated towards making this podcast awesome. To quote my buddy Larry King, I'm heading over to Duke Zebert's for some chicken in the pot. Mm-hmm.